Bible Fellowship this morning, and we're going to begin by playing an, a round of an old game called Name That Tune. Stay seated. Everybody, everybody got it? Anybody got it? What is it? <laughs> of course, most of us know it. It was released by Sister Sledge in 1979. We are a family. Climbed as high as number two on the U.S. Billboard charts and number one on the disco charts. If you don't know disco, well, lucky you. Um, <laughs> Uh, Sister Sledge, that was her last name, were actually four sisters, and the song reminded us of that fact that they were family. Catchy tune, lyrics, uh, it's been used by a number of movies and actually sports franchises since its release. In fact, it was used that very same year, 1979, by the Pittsburgh Pirates when they won uh, the World Series. Now, now the first verse of that song goes um, like this. Everybody can see we're together as we walk on by. Fly. Okay. Um, And and we'll fly just like birds, and we'll, uh, excuse me, and we fly just like birds of a feather. I won't tell no lie. Oh, very good, very good. Uh, All of the people around us, they say, can they be that close? Just let me say, state for the record, we're giving love in a family dose. Kind of catchy, kind of good stuff. Brings us down to the chorus. We are family. I got all my sisters with me. We are family. Everybody get up and sing. No, don't. (laughs) Now, now the second verse has some, well, I'm going to call it crazy theology. I'm not going to go there. In, In fact, stay off your smartphones. You can look it up later. Whether you like disco or not, the lyrics of, of the song actually declare a biblical truth. That, that is what should be true of the church of Jesus Christ. We are family. I got all my brothers and sisters with me. And people should be able to tell by looking that we are family. And they should ask that question, are, are they really that close? Yeah, we are. And it should be attractive to those around us. Uh, of course, the family love that we have comes from the grace that we share through the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are family. In fact, what we just did in, in dedicating Little White was a family experience. The scripture is clear on this point. God is our Father. To as many as received Him, those who believed on His name, to them He gave the right to become children of God. I mean, can you believe that? Children of God. We are called brothers and sisters. And then the church is called the household of God, the, the family of God. There's an old, old saying that goes something like this, blood is thicker than, than water. Now, some suggest, there is some controversy about this, but if you do some research, you'll, you'll find that some suggest that we use this proverb incorrectly. We use it to say the opposite of what it originally meant. 
You see, today when we say blood is thicker than water, we typically mean that family is more important than non-family. Family is more important than than friends. And in other words, blood relationships, biological relationships are important, thicker than what? (laughs) What is water in the proverb? Blood relationships are thicker than water relationships, so I guess thicker than fish. I don't know. What some say, you see, that it originally meant, again, some controversy, some say that it originally meant was the opposite of what we say. The blood of a covenant is thicker than the blood, or excuse me, than the water of the womb. A decision you make to covenant together to belong to each other is thicker than the family you were by chance born into. Well, if that particular understanding is accurate, we are members together of a blood covenant. We are members of a family brought together by the blood of Jesus Christ. He even said at the, at the Lord's, uh, at the Last Supper, as he was giving communion, this is my blood of the covenant. The point I'm trying to make this morning is this. Uh, Family, God's family, made so by the precious blood of Jesus Christ is, is thicker, it's tighter, it's stronger than any other relationship. Do, do you believe that? Biological, ethnic, racial, national, social, all those things that we used to divide us, we are family. I got all my brothers and sisters with me. Now, now, now let, me just, let, let me just take a little aside. If it is true that the gospel breaks down barriers to include racial and ethnic barriers, and it does, Ephesians 2 says that specifically, that the gospel has broken down the wall that divided Jews and Gentiles. So if that is true, and it obviously is, then the church family ought to be made up of all kinds of people, all kinds of people. It's supposed to give us a picture of heaven when the worshiping family will be made up of of people from every tribe and tongue and kindred and nation. So, As everything has happened in, in Ferguson, Missouri, and, and in New York, I, I can't breathe. That movie Selma has come out recounting Martin Luther King Jr., his legacy. We celebrate his birthday tomorrow. And the, and the, and the civil rights movement in Selma, during that march from Selma to Montgomery in 1965, as all of that comes to the forefront of our national conscience. Will you listen to me that the church has the opportunity to highlight the gospel and what it does to race relations? Listen to me, the gospel is supposed to unite. I am so sick and tired of the Reverend Al Sharpton and the Reverend Jesse Jackson. They either need to be quiet or be reverend. Because what they do is divide, and that's not what the gospel does. It makes us family. 
I got all my brothers and sisters with me, and I don't care what your background is. I don't care what your nationality or your ethnicity or your race or your gender or your age, all those things that divide us. We are, we are family. What an opportunity. You want to play the race card? Go ahead. Play a race card. Here's my race card. We're family. I don't care what race you are. And people should look at us and say, really? I mean, really? Are they that close? Jesus said that, that by this will all men know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. Are, are they really that close? Yes. Well, once uh, some, some people came to, to where Jesus was, and they said, your, your, your mother and your brothers are outside. They want to they talk to you. And Jesus looked around at his disciples and said, these are my mothers, and these are my, are my brothers. This is my family. So with family, that's who we are, folks. We are our family. And with family comes duty. With family comes obligation. With, there, there's a right way for us as family to treat one another. And all that brings us then to uh, the, the letter that we've been studying, 1 Timothy, this letter that Paul has written to Timothy, who is serving a church in Ephesus, setting things um, in order after false teaching had infiltrated and disrupted the church. He's told Timothy to deal with false teachers. He's told him how to structure the church. Then after identifying some of the false teaching at the beginning of chapter 4, he tells Timothy, listen, Timothy, this is how you can be a good pastor. This is what you need to focus on. And we looked at that last week and we saw this is, this is how we can be a good church. This is how you can identify a good church. This is how you can identify a good pastor. You ready? Here it is. A good church avoids heresy and commits to truth. It's, a good church has leaders that command and teach truth found in the Scripture. It, it's leaders and people, regardless of age, and, and, I, and I would add, regardless of anything that we normally use to divide us, are examples of truth and speech and in conduct, love, faith, and purity. It focuses, this good church focuses on Scripture, its reading, its proclamation, and its application. That's a good church. It's a church that is founded strongly on the Word of God. Good church exercises its God-given gifts to serve one another. This is all in the text from last week. It's a, it is consumed with the truth of the Word of God, it, it, so much so that it is aware that everything else that is out there are doctrines of demons. It pays close attention, therefore, to itself and to its teaching, which means finally a good church and a good pastor desires to see people saved and, and living out their faith as family. So, so we put all of that together, we, we, we recognize, Paul recognized that young Timothy is going to have to confront some things right there in Ephesus. He's going to have to make some necessary changes. He's going to have to deal with people because, as we've said, ministry is people, all kinds of people. And so having set Timothy on this difficult path of change, this young Leader needs to remember some things about the church, namely that we are family and there are proper ways to deal with each other as family members. There are right and good ways for us to treat each other. And it's found in our text, 1 Timothy chapter 5. I'm going to look at verses 1 to 8 this morning. Look at it with me. Timothy, don't sharply rebuke an older man, but rather appeal to him as a father 
to the younger men as brothers, the, the older women as mothers, and the younger women as sisters in all purity. I want you to honor widows who are widows indeed. But if any widow has children or grandchildren, they must first learn to practice piety in regard to their own family and, and to make some return to their parents, for this is acceptable, pleasing in the sight of God. Now, she who is a widow indeed and who has been left alone has fixed her hope on God and continues in entreaties and prayers night and day. But, but she who gives herself to one pleasure, she's dead even, even while she lives. Prescribe or better command these things as well so that they may be above reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his own, Timothy, anybody doesn't provide for his own, especially for those of his own household, he's denied the faith. He's worse than an unbeliever. In this, in this chapter, Paul reminds Timothy, as he's got this difficult task of putting things in order, he reminds Timothy that we are a family. We have family obligations. Do you know that over a hundred times in his letters, Paul refers to believers as brothers and sisters? Here he makes a, a general statement in the first couple of verses, then focuses on three specific groups within the family. He talks about widows, he talks about elders, and he talks about slaves. That's actually going to be the outline of this particular chapter and the next one. We're going to see family relationships, care of widows, care of elders, and then that slave-master relationship. Today, we're going to just look at those general statements and, and begin with, with the care of widows. Now, many point out, rightly, that Paul is, is writing specifically to a young pastor, Timothy, in dealing with older and, and younger men, older and, and younger women. And, and, and that's true. He, he is. But the applications can be made to, to all of us. All of us should treat older men as fathers, you know, older women as mothers, younger men as brothers, and younger women as sisters, because in the church, they are. They are. So, so let's look briefly at each of those, starting with do not sharply rebuke an older man, but appeal, but rather appeal or exhort him as a father. Now, the word for older man there is actually that word elder, presbuteros, that we looked at in chapter 3. But in this context, it refers to simply an older, older man. We, we use the, the term elder in both ways uh, today. An elder may be an official overseer in, in a church, or it may refer to an older man. In fact, it's kind of interesting there in verse 2, Paul says, appeal to older women as mothers. Older women is, is the feminine form of that word presbuteros. It's only used here in the New Testament, but it's obviously referring to older women. Okay, and I'm going to let you determine who that is. Now, the contextual interpretation of this passage is this. Young Timothy, I have called you to do some challenging things there in Ephesus. As a, as a young leader, part of your responsibility is to deal with some, 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 some older men, you know, in that class of men who were over 40. Remember, he's only in his 30s, two classes, over 40, you're in the older class. I'm not at all suggesting that you're in the older class, women, if you're over 40, not, not, not saying that. So, as you set things in order, as you deal with these challenges, Timothy, do not sharply rebuke an older man. 
Sharply rebuke is a very strong word which speaks of striking someone with your words. It's It's a verbal assault. He says, don't do that. I want you, now I need you to listen. I want you to show proper respect and affection. Get both of those words. Respect and affection toward older saints. We need to learn something about this in our our culture. There are many cultures around the world which honor older people. The U.S. is not one of them. Disrespect toward older people, elderly people, whether they be family members, mothers and fathers, or just older folks, generally speaking, is quite common. In fact, it's quite the end thing to do, kind of the hip thing to do. It's all around us in our culture. There's a whole genre of books and movies geared toward adolescents and young adults. You know, like we're we're talking teens through early 20s. These these books and these movies, they they highlight the wisdom and vigor of of youth over, well, you know, old people. And, And thank God those young people are here to save the planet, you know, from everything. Thank God for Katniss. To save us from older people who've made a mess out of the world. And old people are depicted as stupid, out of touch, ignorant, self-centered, arrogant fools, especially if you're a parent. Somehow when you give birth, you just get stupid. But thank God, the young people are here to be our saviors. While young 30-something Timothy might have to confront, while you might have to confront someone older, maybe even an older believer, don't arrogantly and sharply rebuke them. Instead, appeal to him, in this case, as a father, showing proper respect and affection. Honor is the idea. We need to learn this in our culture. Now, it's interesting. Paul then goes on to say, treat younger men as brothers. In other words, he says, treat, if you get someone younger than you, treat them as an equal. They may be younger, but don't treat them as children. Now, he is talking about younger men. He's not talking about children. Treat children as children because they are. Okay, but younger men, treat them as brothers because they are. So so get the picture here. Older men should treat their juniors with fraternity. Younger men should treat their seniors with humility. And I have this in my note, but I remember as I was reading about this particular text that John Stott said it was really odd as he traveled throughout the West that young people would come up to him and call him by his Christian name. That's his first name. And he says, when I'm old enough to be their grandfather or their great-grandfather. That's odd. He goes on, treat older women as mothers. Show older women, older saints, the proper respect and affection that is due them. Treat them as you would your own mom. (laughs) Which means they should be loved. They should be listened to. They should be protected. They should be cared for. And if you sit there and think, well, you don't know how I treat my mom or my dad, that's a whole other issue that we have to deal with. Treating older people with respect has its roots in the 
fifth commandment. Honor your father and mother. Paul draws on that and says, treat older people, older men, older women as fathers and mothers. Last one's a bit interesting. Treat younger women as sisters. And then he adds in all purity. Again, we see this family relationship that exists. Young, younger women are sisters. And again, some of you may say, oh, I get to treat people around here like I treat my brothers and sisters. Maybe not. Paul is assuming that family members treat each other with due and proper respect, which, which was largely the case in the Greek and Roman cultures. Maybe not necessarily in ours. So treat younger women around here like your sisters because they are, and I keep saying, because they are, I'm quoting 1 John chapter 3. See how great a love the Father has bestowed or the NIV has lavished on us that we would be called children of God and, and, and such we are. It's what, can you believe that? That's, that's what we are. He has loved us into the family such that we are actually children of God which means we are actually brothers and sisters. So would you please treat each other that way? That's what he's saying. But, but notice with younger sisters, he, he adds, in all purity. The, the word clearly speaks of chastity. It speaks young men. It speaks of sexual purity. We have no reason to believe that Timothy was married at this particular point, and Paul is reminding him to treat believing sisters with sexual honor and respect. We would do well to remember that. Young men, as you seek relationships with other believers, sisters in Christ, treat them as a sister, honoring their sexual purity. We are, after all, family. Which brings us then, having introduced this topic, he's going to talk about family relationships. It brings us to the first class of people which receives special attention in this letter. Now, Paul actually addresses widows in the next 14 verses. That is absolutely amazing. Half of a chapter of only six chapters in this letter is devoted to care of widows. Why would he spill so much ink on one class of of people. Why would he talk so much about widows? Can't we just move on, you think? Well, several reasons. First, the, the Old Testament is full of the truth that God has a special place in his heart for orphans, widows, and strangers or, or aliens. That is, those without parents, those without husbands, and those without a home. He has a special place for those, for those people who may not be able to take care of themselves. There are tons of verses in the Old Testament that, that declare this truth. Consider just a few. I just randomly selected some. Exodus 22 says, you shall not afflict any widow or orphan. Deuteronomy 10, he, that is God, executes justice for the orphan and the widow. Psalm 68 says, he is a father to the fathers, a judge for the widows is God in his holy habitation. Again, I could go on and on. As a result of God's special attention to orphans and widows, you, you find him commanding the Israelites, I need you to take care of them. Give special focus, special attention to them. For example, to the Israelites, you're not supposed to go over your fields, your harvest fields twice. I want you to leave what you miss for the widows. Same is true of the grape harvest, one time. 
And don't beat your olive trees twice. Leave some for the widows. We see God's special care for, for widows like Naomi and, and Ruth, who, by the way, is in the lineage of Jesus. We see his special care of widows through Elijah, the widow of Zarephath, and Elisha, the Shumanite widow, just to name a few. In fact, later the Israelites are rebuked over and over by the prophets for oppressing widows. They have a special place in the heart of God. Do, are we to think that, that's just, that that has changed? Second, this special care for widows can, we see continues in the New Testament. We see it in the life of Jesus. We see Anna, for example, who spent uh, decades going to the temple praying, and she was allowed to hold and see the baby Jesus. You see Jesus teaching through the examples of a couple of widows, the widow who gave her two mites or two copper coins, the widow who would, who would not give up pursuing the unjust judge, be like her. You see, Jesus stopping a funeral procession to raise the only son of a widow, the widow of Nain. He even took care of his mother. Jesus took care of his own widow mother from the cross as he gave charge of Mary to John. Here's your mother. You see the family relationship? See, this care for widows continue in the early church. The first deacons, the very first deacons were appointed in the church in Jerusalem, to take care of widows. The pastor of the church in Jerusalem, a guy named James, later wrote, pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress. You want a pure and undefiled religion that God really likes? Take care of orphans, take care of widows. Has this changed? God always has a special place in his heart for orphans and widows. So, so now Paul gives a tremendous amount of instruction for taking care of this group. He gives two actual, actually gives two paragraphs on widows. We're just going to look at the first one today, which actually kind of highlights the responsibility of family to take care of widows, and then he'll go on to talk about the church doing so. If they appointed deacons in that first church to take care of widows, there must have been a, a lot of them, and in fact, there were. Then, even more so than now, women outlived men. And the practice of the day was something like this. If the widow still had her dowry, and a dowry was given by her father to, to her to be taken care of in marriage, if she still had that dowry, then she could take that dowry and go live with her oldest son, and he would use that to care for her. Or she could perhaps go back and live with her parents. But here's some questions. What if she didn't have the dowry anymore? Oh, what if her parents were no longer living? What if she didn't have a son? Or what if he was unable to provide for her? You see, the widow problem, there were no 401ks. There was no Social Security. The widow problem was a huge issue at this particular time. So Paul starts with church. Now he's focusing on the church. Church, I want you to honor widows who are widows indeed. Now, now, now he says that three times in this, but what does this mean, widows indeed? Does that mean there were fake widows? Not ex exactly. What he means is take care of widows who are widows in need, who are in the category of being destitute, of being alone, uh, of having no one to take care of them, of, of needing care. You see that word honor actually means more than just to revere and respect them, pat them on the back and say, hey, nice to meet you. It means to provide material and financial assistance. 
In other words, widows in the church are to be physically cared for. Now, there is an order to care. Paul says in verse 4 that the widow's descendants, namely her children and grandchildren, had the first responsibility to take care of mom and grandma. I want you to hear me very clearly now. If you call yourself a follower of Jesus Christ, you will take care of mom and grandma. If you don't, we'll get to verse 8 in a minute. He gives three positive reasons for taking care of mom in verse 8, and one rather strongly worded negative reason for not doing so in verse 8. Three positive reasons go like this. First, by taking care of mom or grandma, you are practicing piety. That word speaks of reverence. It speaks of, it speaks of putting your, your godliness into practice. In other words, he's saying, listen, I need you to understand something. Taking care of widow mom is the right thing to do. It's what Christians do. Jesus condemned the Pharisees for not doing so, for, for taking resources that they had that could be used to take care of parents and, and calling it Corban or Corban. Uh, this is a gift devoted to God. It, it looks spiritual. Hey, this money that I could use to take care of my very poor mom, I wish I could use it, but hey, I can't. I've devoted it to God. And then they would use those resources to take care of themselves because they saw themselves as serving God. And so, hey, I'll take care of me. Jesus condemned them for it. They were ignoring a spiritual, listen to my words, a spiritual responsibility in the name of something spiritually fraudulent. Second reason he gives is by taking care of mom or grandma, you are making some return to your parents. Yep, it's as bad as it sounds. It's really interesting. Everyone knows, if you're a parent in here, everyone knows that parents invest like lots. Um, physically, financially. We won't even talk about emotionally and relationally. We'll just talk about physically and financially. We invest a lot in kids. Here Paul says, you have an opportunity to make a return. And he's talking, the word there speaks of repayment, of recompense. The idea is that parents invest in their children and if needed, they should get some ROI, some return on that investment. Children, you have an opportunity to repay parents. Third, Paul says such an action of taking care of parents is acceptable. Actually, better translated, pleasing in the sight of God. Of course it is. He has always had a special place in his heart for widows. And if we want to bear the family resemblance, if we want to be like him, of course we're going to take care of our widows. Paul then goes on to give a rather negative reason in verse 8. He says, if anyone, any child or grandchild does not provide for his own family, especially in this context, those of his household, mom or grandmother, then he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. That's, those are strong words. Maybe it says something else in the Greek. It doesn't. You, you, you see, taking care of family is the Christian thing to do. To ignore that responsibility when you, when you have the financial resources to do so is to deny the reality of your faith. Paul actually says here, you are proving that you do not know Jesus. So my, 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 I got to take care of mom. I just don't even like her. What, that's a problem. 
These are strong words. Children of God bear a family resemblance to the Father. We take care of widows. We take care of our widows just like He does. And if you don't, He says, you're worse than an unbeliever. You see, the Greek and Roman cultures, in some sense, took care of their widows. For us, as believers, not to do so is to be worse than an unbeliever. Strong words. Now, quickly, Paul moves from the order of widow care, right? Family first. To, and he's going to talk about the church next, next week. He's going to talk about the widow herself in verses 5 to 7. In other words, just, he, he says, I, I need to talk about the widow because just being a widow does not necessarily mean that you get help from the church. What? I, I think this is important when it comes to our understanding of benevolence care. Let me say it again. Just being in need does not require that the church necessarily meet the need. I want you to understand that we have a benevolence fund here that you guys give very, very faithfully to, to the tune of like, I don't know, $80,000, $100,000 a year that, that, that we distribute to, to people in need. But I want you to know that we try to exercise wisdom in handing out benevolence money. Just because someone comes to the office and, you know, you do understand we are Alliance Bible Fellowship, you break open the yellow, you know, the pa- yellow pages and we are A, <laughs> we get lots of phone calls. People come to us all the time. Just because they do does not mean they get a handout. They have to meet certain requirements. If you've heard that we have, a, if you have, heard that we have an application that you have to fill out in order to get benevolence help, you've heard correctly. We're trying to administer those funds well. They need to at least demonstrate a real need and at least some desire towards spirituality. We're not saying that they have to be a Christian, but some desire towards spirituality, toward understanding the Christian faith. Otherwise, they're just using the church. For the widow, Paul identifies two requirements. First, as we've already said, she must be a widow indeed. That is, she must be a widow in need. She's got to be left alone. She doesn't have the resources, either personally or from her family, to take care of herself. He'll talk about that next week. And secondly, she's a widow who is truly a sister and demonstrating a reliance on God for her care. That's what the end of verse 5 or 7 means. She's fixed her eyes on God and continues in entreaties and prayers and day and night. She she understands that, hey, if I'm going to get help, it's going to come from God and His people. She's a praying woman. She's a trusting woman, trusting God ultimately for her care. And, of course, he, he, he cares for her. He's telling us, I'm telling us, I'm telling you right now, God cares for our widows through the church. Verse 7 says, prescribe, better command these things, Timothy, so that they, big question about who they is, so that they may be above reproach. Is they the children who take care of their mom or the moms who are godly widows? Take your pick. It's interesting that to be above reproach is a qualification of an elder. Paul says, I want widows, we'll apply it there, to be godly women, pursuing God in prayer, to be above reproach. It does not mean, as we saw with elders, that they are perfect, but it does mean that she lives a life demonstrated by her dependence on God through prayer. She lives a godly life. This is a qualification, you see, because just being a widow does not qualify a person for care. She must live a faithful Christian life. In fact, Paul points out in verse 6, if she gives herself to wanton pleasure, if she's living an, an ungodly, likely in the context, a sexually immoral life, the church, I want you to hear this, the church has no responsibility to take care of her. Why? She's spiritually dead. She, she's not a member of the family. Again, this does not 
I mean, this tells me that it is not the church's responsibility necessarily to care for every widow in the community. It does tell me we have a responsibility to care for our widows. We have that responsibility. Now, I know as we get to this point that there are lots of questions about the application of this passage, right? I know some of you who have older moms are thinking, like, what about what about nursing homes? What about medical care? What if the church does not have the financial resources? And then very interestingly, and we're going to talk about this next week, what about those women who are, well, I'll call them functional widows? What do I mean? Well, see, in our society, there are lots of women whose husbands have abandoned them. They are functional widows. What, what about them? We have lots of single moms. Does this responsibility apply to them as a church? Lots of questions. We'll come back to it next week. But for now, as we close this morning, I want you to understand something. We are family. And we should treat one another as family with proper respect and affection and care do family members. And a group of family members that Paul here singles out, indeed all of Scripture singles out for special attention and focus, that Jesus singled out His widows. To be a church, to be a good church, to be the church of Jesus Christ, to be a family, we've got to care for our widows. Let's stand for prayer. Father, that is an intense passage. That's that's an awful lot of verses, and we're not even done talking about widows. And and my desire for us as a church is that we would not ho-hum the passage, that we would not just move over it too quickly, that we would not just think, well, we got governmental agencies who do what the church is supposed to do. I, I, I pray that you would convict us, family members, uh, biological family members, taking care of moms and grandmas, sure, but, but, but church family members, uh, taking care of our, our women who have lost husbands either to death or abandonment. Help us to figure out what that looks like. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.